The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning. Feels strange to be back to two services in some ways, but well, open your Bibles if you would to the book of, of Galatians in Galatians chapter five. Thank you to uh, the worship team. So Justin, John, Corey, Dennis, Gabe, whoever that was on the end there. Uh, sorry, that was my daughter, Anna, for those who are maybe new. Uh, and, and, and Corey, I think the, uh, after what, like seven hours of, of practice on the base was up here, so. I'll be leading a solo next week, but. And thank you, Steve, for that, that wonderful prayer. Uh, and those who, who, maybe if you're new, you don't know, my name is Pastor Bill, and uh, I get, it's my pleasure and joy to get to open God's Word with you this morning. So, uh, again, Galatians uh, chapter 5, we're going to read through uh, verses 1 through 6. And so, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? So, Galatians 5, verse 1, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You would be just justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So when we talk about salvation, we often land on one of two topics, right? Justification and the other being sanctification. Justification referring to the kind of how we are saved. And the second, sanctification being kind of now what? Now that we are saved, what should our Christian life look like? It's the how we grow in in the process of growing more and more like Christ. I think to talk about these two things and the distinction between them is important because we can at times confuse the two. We can be tempted in our thinking to combine sanctification with justification and vice versa. We might confuse what makes us sanctified or the process of sanctification with what makes us justified. And sometimes we even start thinking that they are one and the same. When we do that, we can start to think that the other, it doesn't matter. We have to be careful with this thinking. Justification and sanctification are two distinct and important things. They are both aspects of our salvation, but they are not the same thing. And today our focus is going to be on justification. During our text this morning, Galatians 5.1, it says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
So our passage this morning begins with the idea of freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Which may bring up the question, what is freedom? Maybe we think of one of the greatest movies of all time, the movie Braveheart. Mel Gibson as William Wallace screaming, freedom! I like the movie. In the United States, freedom often means freedom from being told what to do. But what we desire is the freedom to just be left alone. So we always need to ask what is meant by freedom. Whether freedom is worth having or not depends on what kind of freedom it is. What is it freedom from? What does this freedom allow? I like the way that John Stott describes it when he says, Freedom from my silly little self in order to live responsibly in love for God and others. When we say that we are free in Christ, we are saying that we are free from the bondage of sin in our lives as we grow and mature in our faith. And we are free from the law in terms of justification because Christ was the fulfillment. John 8 says, So Jesus said to the Jew, sorry, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. For freedom, Christ has set us free. We are free from the burden of having to justify ourselves. We are free from the burden of trying to win God's favor. Freedom is not freedom to do whatever we want, but freedom to do as we should. Now I am, I am free to be how God wants me to be and to do what God wants me to do. There's nothing I have to do to, to win God's acceptance. Sin doesn't have the same power over us that it once did. We are free. We are free to, to serve him and honor him in our lives because we don't have the same yoke. But let's be honest with ourselves. Let's acknowledge our sinfulness and that this idea of freedom can be misunderstood. Or, or misapplied. We can think wrongly about freedom, and when we do, the same idea of freedom can be at risk. The freedom that's being discussed here, it can be abused. How? Well, first of all, this freedom that we're talking about can be misunderstood, or is at risk if we take it for granted. So again, Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm, therefore. Notice that that is a command. Don't take freedom for granted. And it says, do not submit again. So you, we, we've submitted to the yoke of slavery before. Well, what is that? In Acts 15, it says, Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So yoke here, it's using the analogy of a wooden implement that would be placed on an ox to make it pull a load. In this passage, it symbolizes the requirement of keeping the law to be right with God. But in Romans, Paul addresses this when he says, 
What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what our text in Galatians is saying is, don't develop a mentality that says, I came in by grace. That was, that was God's part, but the rest of this, that's up to me. That's all on my efforts. The law, Paul says, the law will crush you. The law will destroy you. The law will put you back into a place of slavery again. If we look ahead in our text just a little bit and look at Galatians 5.8, it says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. So verse 8 is saying that, that legalism is not a God thing. Now, let's go back and look at verse 2, where it says again, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So we are seeing a, a, we're starting to see a distinction being made between freedom in Christ and Jewish laws, or, or how it might look today as legalism. Verse 1 says freedom in Christ. And our text says, so don't accept or submit to circumcision in verse 2. If you accept circumcision, then Christ is of no advantage. So Paul's addressing the idea that some Jews are telling the Gentiles that to be saved, they must follow Jewish laws or become Jews or be circumcised and follow the law. Now, in saying this, let's stop for a moment and ask this question. What is legalism? What do we mean by that? Theologian Todd Wilson describes legalism this way. Legalism is treating that which is good as though it were essential. Whenever a Christian turns something valuable into something ultimate, legalism is at work and freedom is forfeited. On the other hand, we preserve our freedom in Christ when what is essential to God is essential to us and everything else is kept in its place. Please note that it can often be good things or, or something valuable that we can make ultimate and we can become legalists about. Legalists tend to lose sight of what ultimately counts. They start thinking that non-essentials are essential. They begin to insist that, that good things are, in fact, necessary. And the result is that they look with pity or suspicion on anyone who would think or do otherwise. Legalism exists when people attempt to secure righteousness in God's sight by good works. Legalists believe that they can earn or merit God's approval by performing the requirements of the law. A legalist believes that their good works and obedience to God affects their salvation. Legalism focuses on God's laws more than relationship with God. It keeps external laws without a truly submitted heart. Martin Luther sparked the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s when he argued that Christians are saved by faith and faith alone. This went against the previous understanding of salvation, which said that salvation comes through both faith and our obedience or our works. We're saved by faith, without good works, prior to good works. We come to God through faith alone. 
We see examples in Scripture of this, such as in Luke 18, 9 through 14. You don't need to turn there. I'll summarize it quickly. But Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector praying in a temple that illustrates this comparison well. The Pharisee boldly thanks God that he is he's not like these other people. He's not like the, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, and even not like that tax collector. And instead, he brings attention to his own fasting and tithing to his works. In contrast, a tax collector He stands at a distance, not even able to lift his head to heaven, beating his chest and praying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus tells the crowd that the tax collector who pleaded for mercy for his sins rather than the Pharisee who was proud of his spiritual accomplishments was the one who went home justified before God. Our salvation starts and ends with faith in the atoning sacrifice Christ made for us on the cross. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is good news. Galatians 3 reminds us, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. So just quickly, let's look at what does legalism look like? How do we recognize it? R.C. Sproul outlines three forms of legalism that I I think are helpful. One, he says, focusing on God's laws more than relationship with God. Legalism creeps in where one is concerned merely with, with the keeping of God's law as an end in itself. Sproul points out that legalism divorces obedience from God's law and redemption. He says the legalist focuses only on obeying bare rules, destroying the broader context of God's love and redemption in which he gave his law in the first place. Number two, keeping external laws without a truly submitted heart. Closely linked to the first, but Sproul says legalism obeys the externals while the heart is far removed from any desire to honor God, the intent of his law or his Christ. And three, it says, adding human rules to divine laws and treating them as divine. When, what Sproul calls the most common and deadly form of legalism is when we add our own rules to God's law and treat them as divine. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees at this very point, saying, you teach human traditions as if, as if they were the word of God. We have no right to heap up restrictions on people where he has where he has no stated restriction. So now that we hopefully have a, a better understanding of legalism, so what? Right? What what's the danger? If they can be good, what's the harm? Would it not be better to err on that side? But when we add to the gospel to think Jesus plus we actually make less of Christ. 
We are in effect saying Jesus is not enough. When we say Jesus plus, it says that this Jesus, he can only get you so far, but you need Jesus and something else. So in our text, Paul is saying if they accept circumcision, Paul says if they do that, they in effect forsake the blessings of the new covenant, purchased with Christ's blood, and are left only with the provisions of the old covenant, living as if Christ had never been slain. If we try to do it all ourselves, we will be left to ourselves. We'll be left to fend for ourselves. We won't have Christ's blood. We won't have Christ's life. We won't have Christ's grace. All we'll have is our sinful, silly little dissatisfied self, which isn't all that much comfort. We know we've lost sight of what ultimately counts in the Christian life when we begin to lose the joy of living the Christian life. Joy of the Christian life. Do we have this joy? Is it possible that if the answer is no, is it possible that it's because we've we've added too many rules? We've lost sight of the freedom in Christ? We've taken that freedom for granted? I think part of the struggle is that we are, we are hardwired to think that we are saved by effort or by legalism. Our minds struggle to, to fully grasp or comprehend that other than our own sin, which even in saying that, we have to recognize sin nature, we contribute nothing to our justification. And our own pride has a hard time with that. So again, what Paul's addressing here in our text specifically is the issue of of circumcision. Why circumcision? Circumcision is an external action that the Jews believe brought favor from God, putting salvation in your own hands. He's not talking about the physical act of circumcision, but the seeing circumcision as salvific. Paul understood that what was really at stake was the justification of sinners. What makes a person right with God Getting circumcised was a way of saying that sinners have to do something to get right with God. This is what Paul meant when he spoke of those who would be justified by the law in verse 4 of our text. He was talking about circumcision as something that stood for the whole law of God. The Jews were circumcised already, of course, and there was nothing wrong with this. The problem was Gentiles using circumcision as a means of justification. As circumcision became mandatory for all Christians, whether Jews or Gentiles, then salvation would be based on a work rather than on God's free grace. It's either the righteousness of Christ or the righteousness of works. You can't dilute it. You can't have 99% justification by faith and 1% justification by works of the law. It doesn't work that way. You're either completely based on the work and merits of Jesus justified, or you're not justified. If you don't want to be under grace, but under the law, you you have no need for Jesus. But if you want to be under the law, you have to be under all the law, all the time. But in verse 9, we're told that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little bit of legalism impacts the whole body. So what do we do? Every morning we should remind ourselves that we are free in Christ. 
that Jesus has purchased us in order that we might be free from the yoke of bondage, from the yoke of slavery, free from man-made laws, free from laws that once had a place in the history of redemption, but have no place now in terms of obedience to win the favor of God. So freedom is at risk. Freedom can be abused if we take it for granted. But freedom can also be at risk when we take our eyes off of Jesus, when he is not our focus, when our eyes are fixed on something else. Hebrews 12 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are to look to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's look at verse 2 of our passage again, where it says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. No advantage of no benefit or of no value, depending on your translation. If you think by being circumcised, you can will the favor of God. If you think that by imposing circumcision on the Gentiles, that will somehow make them more acceptable. Or maybe if only they they looked like us. If only they dressed like us. If only they conformed to our system of values. If only they voted like us. Paul is saying, if you go down that road, you'll take your eyes off of Jesus and Christ will be of no advantage to you. All of a sudden, you're looking at laws. You're looking at obedience. You're looking at conforming. You're trying to measure yourself by the standards of other people. And maybe, maybe a little bit of pride comes in if you manage to to obey here and there. And suddenly, you're a little better than somebody else. Not only has it hindered and brought you into slavery, but it has also made you proud, and your head has started to swell, and you've taken your eyes off of Jesus. Now, I already said this, but let me say it again. We are talking about justification. We're not talking about sanctification. But if we're honest, sometimes we fall into into this idea that in order to be saved, we've got to check a whole lot of boxes. Now, don't get me wrong. Maybe, maybe once saved, there are conversations about conduct that we need to have. But that's a different conversation. And spoiler alert, we'll get into that a little bit next week. When you go down this road of legalism and thinking of justification, you're taking your eyes off of Jesus. So my encouragement to you instead is see Jesus. Remind yourself of what he has accomplished. Remind yourself of his perfect obedience. Remind yourself of him crucified upon a cross, dying, buried, risen, victorious, ascending to heaven, and coming back again. But freedom can be at risk when we take it for granted or when we take our eyes off of Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. But this same freedom is diminished when when my performance becomes the measurement of my justification. My sense of guilt, my sense of guilt becomes the measurement of my justification. 
Verse 3 of our text says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. It doesn't stop with circumcision. It doesn't stop with one law. It's never-ending because you have to obey it all in all its fullness. And he says in verse 4, if that's, dire- if that's the direction you are going, you are severed from Christ. Now, he's not talking about losing your salvation. That's not what he's suggesting here. He's not saying that a, a true believer can fall from grace. But what he's saying is if the direction you are going, if that's the direction that you're going, you might as well be be severed from Christ because you're not looking to him. The measurement now of your justification is yourself. And if you think it's based on yourself, then do you fully understand Jesus? Do you fully understand the cross? If the answers are no, then it's a fair question to ask if you're really saved. Now, to be clear, again, we can, all, we can all struggle with this. So it may not be a reason to panic, but it's a fair question to ask. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. You've forgotten grace. You've forgotten that salvation is a free gift, that we cannot earn it. Then we see starting in verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Freedom is at risk when guilt becomes the measurement of my justification. My performance becomes the measurement of my justification. My full performance, my flawless performance. But the gospel is for sinners. Like the story of David, who, who fell horribly. His story with Bathsheba and, and the lies, he fell further and further into sin. And yet, David is God's son and heir. Because his justification isn't measured by the quality of his obedience, but by, the faith, by his faith in God's promises. What do we mean by the word faith? Or sometimes we see it as to believe. Faith is God's work in us that changes us and gives us new birth from God. John 1 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It destroys the old self. It makes us completely different people. It makes us new. It changes our hearts, our spirits, our thoughts. It brings the Holy Spirit with it. Martin Luther said that faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful, and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. The Holy Spirit makes this happen through faith. Because of it, you freely, willingly, and joyfully do good to everyone, 
Serve everyone, suffer all kinds of things. Love and praise the God who has shown you such grace. Thus, it is just as impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. Therefore, watch out for your own false ideas and guard against good-for-nothing gossips who think they're smart enough to define faith and works, but really are the greatest of fools. Ask God to work faith in you, or you will remain forever without faith, no matter what you wish, say, or can do. Freedom is at risk when the measurement of our justification is our own obedience instead of Christ's obedience. And freedom is at risk when we think, because there's freedom, because there's grace, we can do whatever we want. We can do as we please. When we think, I'm free, I'm forgiven, so it doesn't matter what I do. I can sin all I want, and it doesn't matter because I'm forgiven. We call this cheap grace. So all of a sudden, Paul spins it around. Yes, we're free, but we are free to do what God intends us to be. Notice again in verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, sorry, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. Faith works. There's action. Faith wants to love Christ with all the heart and mind and soul and strength. Faith wants to do what God wants us to do. John 14 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But the motivation for keeping God's commandments is not that I'd be justified. It's not that God might love me a little bit more. He loves me. He loves me with infinite love. He has loved me from all eternity. He loved me before I was ever born. He loved me and drew me to Christ. We are the called ones, Paul says in the beginning of Galatians. He called us by his grace into union and fellowship and communion with Jesus Christ in order that we might, out of gratitude, as a way of thanksgiving, as a way of saying, this is the measurement of my love for you, I give myself entirely to you. I am crucified with Christ, and our lives are dedicated to a life of obedience, not in order to win God's favor, but because we are the favored ones. Here then is a key to gospel-centered living that we find in Galatians and the rest of Scripture. What ultimately counts in this life is what ultimately matters on the day of judgment. And what will make the difference on the day of judgment? The very same thing that makes the difference on the day we are justified, namely faith. But the kind of faith that makes a difference on the day of judgment, indeed, the kind of faith that justifies, it isn't the, what the demons possess. Mere mental assent to the facts of the Christian faith. No, instead, it's the kind of faith that so trusts in Jesus that it inevitably expresses itself in love for both God and others. It's the kind of faith that is working through love. This is the only kind of faith that will count on the last day. This is the only thing that ultimately matters. Faith in Christ expressed in love for God and for others. 
But why is this relevant to us today? Because none of us are going to insist that what ultimately counts is circumcision or stealing or lying or cheating or murder. But we might insist that, that water baptism ultimately counts or our political views or the view we hold on some interesting point of doctrine. We might even think that the, that the movies we watch or the ones that we don't watch or how we dress ultimately counts. Like those believers in Galatia, we are tempted to turn good things like circumcision and biblical fidelity into ultimate things. Neither a denominational church or a non-denominational church ultimately counts, but only faith working through love. Neither traditional music nor contemporary music ultimately counts, but only faith working through love. Neither teetotaling nor enjoying a glass of wine ultimately counts, but only faith working through love. Neither voting Republican or voting Democrat ultimately counts, but only faith working through love. Now, this is not to say that you shouldn't care about these things, nor does it mean that these issues are unimportant. Not at all. Instead, it means we must realize these things are important only insofar as they promote faith and produce love. If they don't, then we're missing what ultimately counts. For if we have not love, we gain nothing. 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In our text, Paul says, starting in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Ouch. Paul really takes this metaphor to its ultimate conclusion. Recognizing that there are children in the room, I'll save you the details, but I think you can, you can see what he's saying here. It's not enough to say, obey this law and that law. It's endless. And before you know it, you're enslaved to a law. You can't get free from it. Now looking at verse 13 of our text. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The letter to the Galatians has been about legalism, but now it's on the other side. It's saying that our freedom is not that we might be antinomians. Now, for some, the law is not something that we keep in order to, to thank God for our salvation, but instead, it's something that we do in order to achieve salvation. And some teach that Christians are not obligated to the moral law. As we consider the role of God's law in the Christian life, we must first address the old heresy of antinomianism. 
which proclaims freedom from the law in the form of licentiousness. Antinomianism says that Christians can live however they want, for the law is in no way binding for believers. The apostles themselves confronted antinomian theology. Paul, for example, had to explain that anyone who uses the grace of God as an excuse to sin and break the law has not really understood the gospel. We can read Romans 6.15 for this. Yes, God has justified us apart from our, our obedience to the law. In fact, he has declared us righteous in spite of our obedience to the law, for we have not perfectly kept his commandments. But... As we have seen, God did not set his law aside when he justified us. He sent Christ to keep it on our behalf, to render the perfect obedience of which we are incapable. That the law of God is so important to him that he does not justify us without having Christ keep it in our place demonstrates that the law's standards are not negotiable. We do not gain entry to heaven by obeying the law, but those who are citizens of God's kingdom seek to live according to that law. If we do not attempt to follow God's law, we show no evidence of saving faith. And without saving faith, we do not have eternal life. So again, Paul's letter to the Galatians is talking about our freedom in Christ. It's saying that our freedom is not that we might be antinomians. Our freedom is not that we can live as we please. When you love someone, you don't obey because it's a chore, because it's an obligation. You obey because you love that person and you want to please that person. Too many people today, and maybe even some of you in this room, If you ask them if they will go to heaven, they'll say something like, well, you know, I'm a good person. I've tried to to be good to people. So, yeah, I think I will. To them or to you, if that's your answer, I say, and more importantly, Scripture says, Christ is of no advantage to you. Christ is of no advantage because you are relying on yourself and on your performance. If your confidence, if your assurance is based on yourself and what you do, what you bring to the table, then Christ is of no advantage to you because in Christ it is all grace. Now again, don't confuse justification with sanctification. With freedom, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are justified on the basis of Jesus. This is not saying that we don't, out of love of God, work to grow in him and obey his commands, but we don't confuse those with what makes us saved. Understanding that sin makes us thick-headed, unwilling to accept certain truths when they receive minimal emphasis. Scripture repeats foundational doctrines so so that they might penetrate our hearts and minds. The man-made religions of this world prove that without the work of the Holy Spirit, people think they're basically good and can contribute something to their salvation. This strips glory from God and gives it to us. For if we can do even one thing to merit salvation, then we deserve at least a little credit, right? All belief systems except biblical Christianity encourage us to believe that we can... 
to believe that we contribute to our salvation, even if they deceitfully assert otherwise. The scripture says the salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In John 19, we read, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When Jesus says it is finished, the Greek word translated as finished, it's from economics, it's from accounting. It's the word used when the final payment has been paid. It is paid in full. It is done. It is complete. It is finished. So when we think we have to add to our salvation, we are in effect trying to make something that is finished, like more finished. So our answer to the question of heaven is not, well, I've been a good person. But our answer to the question is Jesus. That's it. I'm relying on the promises of Jesus. I have nothing on my own, but I know and love Jesus, and I believe and trust in his promises, and that his work is complete, and that his work is sufficient, and that it is finished. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that we struggle to fully grasp the truth of the gospel that we can take it for granted, that we take our eyes off of you, that we can be tempted towards legalism or that our performance can bring more favor from you. Forgive us. Forgive us of this pride. Forgive us of our stubbornness. Help us to have a right view of salvation, a right view of justification. And let that right view bring out of us thankfulness and a greater desire for obedience. Lord, we can be tempted to hear this and then walk out of this room and forget it. But we ask that you continue to remind us of your grace. Remind us that we don't deserve your mercy. Remind us that we are in need of a Savior because we cannot save ourselves. Help us to keep the things that are important to you important to us. Help us to value what you value. We ask for the strength to continue to serve you, to endure and resist temptation. Thank you that in you, by being adopted into your family, we are not a slave to sin anymore. Give us a boldness to share the gospel with others. Increase our awe of you and what you have done in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.